0: When I was 18 years old, I had an experience that I am sure will stay with me for the rest of my life. I had just graduated from high school, and it was a few weeks before I was supposed to be heading off to college. But before the fall semester began, I was going on a trip, a wilderness trip, hiking and biking and canoeing rock climbing and rappelling through miles and miles of river and forest in Wisconsin. We uh, carried 80-pound packs on our backs. Uh, We set up camp every night. We cooked our own dinner over an open fire every night. Uh, It was as you might expect. And we traveled about 120 miles in 21 days. It was a great experience. But it was also a lot of work. And uh, we ate 7,000 calories a day and by the end of the 21 days I had lost 10 pounds. And unlike now I didn't really have 10 pounds to lose so it was a problem. Now this wilderness trip was actually a college course that was offered by my college. Where I could get to earn a couple credits, but also get to know a dozen or so other incoming freshmen and enjoy fun experiences bonding with them and fellowship. It was also a goal of that class to see God's beautiful creation and to reflect and meditate upon it and upon him. And it was a fantastic experience. Having grown up only an hour from New York City, I had never been to Wisconsin before. And I'd never been on this kind of trip before. But the one experience in this trip that really amazed me, that I had never seen before, was the Wisconsin night sky. One day, after a lot of hard work, we decided that we were going to sleep out under the stars. No tarps, no tents. No rain clouds coming. And it turned out that this particular night was the peak of the Perseid meteor shower for that year, right in the middle of August. And what I saw that night As I stared up at the beautiful sky that the Lord had created was unlike anything I had ever seen before. I never knew that there were so many stars as that. And I got to experience God's glory, even though it was only a fraction of God's glory. Just like verse 1 of how great thou art, I saw the stars. There wasn't any rolling thunder. But I did see God's power throughout the universe displayed, and my heart wanted to sing, How great Thou art! And that experience is exactly what God intends for us to see when we look at His creation. This is the message of the first six verses of Psalm 19 our text from God's Word this morning. If you would, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 19. If you haven't brought a Bible this morning, there's one under the seat back in front of you. And you can find Psalm 19 in that Bible. It can be found on page 456. Please join me there as we read God's Word together. As we read... Please notice how those first six verses of this psalm expand on the way that God's glory is seen in his creation. And then after those six verses, the psalm changes its focus from God's creation and begins to emphasize God's word instead. So let's pay attention to God's word as we read this psalm Psalm 19. To the choir master. A Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is Warned, In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Please join me in prayer as we ask God to bless this reading of his word. Lord, your beauty, your glory in the world around us and in this word. Lord, we pray that it would strike us anew. We ask that you would work in our hearts to help us see afresh your will and your word, that we might see you in your word. We ask you to work by your Holy Spirit for the kingdom of Jesus Christ and for his honoring glory. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. One of the nice things about Psalm 19 is that its organization is fairly straightforward. <clears throat> the song has three different sections, focus on three different truths. Verses 1 through 6 focus on God's creation, the created world around us, and particularly the heavens. And then in section 2, verses 7 through 11 focus on God's word. <clears throat> Finally, section 3 in verses 12 through 14 close this psalm (coughs) with the author's reflection on his own desire to live rightly before the Lord. So let's start with section 1. These first six verses, the heading of the psalm tells us two things about it. Number one, that it was written by David. And number two, that it was designed to be sung in worship, to be performed in worship by the choir of Levites that was led by the choir master. And verse 1 is a summary statement. Verse 1 is what David wants to tell us about this first section, namely, the heavens declare the glory of God. This is the first point that David wants to make, that the heavens declare the glory of God and those next five verses expand on that idea and explain it further. But what is the glory of God? What does that phrase, the glory of God, mean? And how can the heavens declare it? The word glory is somewhat familiar in English, and we might have some idea of what it means. But the Hebrew word is a little different, slightly. The Hebrew word for glory more literally means something like heaviness or weight. To say that something has glory is to say that it has weightiness, that it has gravity, that it has significance and importance, a kind of greatness. So when verse 1 says the heavens declare the glory of God, It means that God's weightiness, his significance, is on display when we look at the sky. Have you ever felt that way before when you looked at the sky? That in the sky there's this message for you to consider about God's greatness? If you haven't, I just want to let you know that's what David wants you to see When you look at the sky. And as you read this psalm. But it begs the question, how how does the sky, how do the heavens declare God's glory? How do they proclaim the weightiness and significance and greatness of God? The answer is, the skies tell us about him. When we look at the heavens, we not only see their beauty and their glory, we see God's beauty and God's glory. Romans one nineteen to 19-20 puts it this way, about what the created world can tell us about God. Romans 1, 19-20 says, What can be known about God is plain to mankind because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so when you look at the sky, I want you to think to yourself, this is a proclamation. It's an announcement of God's eternal power and divine nature just by looking at God's creation. There's a reason why the movements of the sun and the moon, the progression of the seasons from spring to summer to fall to winter predictably, even annular solar eclipses like the one we had yesterday, are all perfectly predictable, and not just perfectly predictable like a week out. The things that we see in the sky are predictable thousands of years into the future. And they want to tell you God is a God of order. When you look up there and see a universe that's billions... Of light years across, filled with billions of swirling galaxies, in each of which is billions of stars. That's a proclamation that our God is a God of power and greatness. When you see that the sun faithfully rises and sets every day at its appointed times, the sky wants you to know the creator of it is a God of consistency and faithfulness. Scripture says that these realities ought to be apparent to anyone who looks at the world around us. I'm a Latin teacher, and... uh, I love Latin and the Roman world. Um, The famous Roman statesman and philosopher Cicero spoke about what we can know when we look at the universe. He's a pagan, but even pagans can see clearly what God has proclaimed in his heavens. This is what he says in his book on the nature of the gods. Wouldn't necessarily recommend it for good theology, but Let's hear what he has to say. He wrote, when you look at a picture or a statue, you recognize that it's a work of art. When you follow from afar the course of a ship upon the sea, you don't question that its movement is guided by a skilled intelligence. When you see a sundial or a water clock, it was a thing. Uh, you see that it tells the time by design and not by chance. How then can you imagine that the universe as a whole is devoid of purpose and intelligence when it includes everything, including those items themselves and their craftsmen? It was clear It has been clear since the creation of the world that the heavens proclaim God, a powerful, orderly, faithful, consistent creator. But even more, when you look up at the heavens, they are beautiful themselves and glorious. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of galaxies swirling or Saturn with its rings or planetary nebulae? If you have, you know that the universe is a place of incredible beauty. And that God is a God of beauty and creativity. I am really, really looking forward to the trip that many of us are going to be making to Big Bend State Park in November. When creation will again declare that our God a God of beauty. But let's continue on to verse 2. It reads, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This proclamation that God has placed in the sky happens all day, every day. The song of God's glory is being broadcast to the whole world 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and did you notice what it said? This proclamation is pouring out. In that regard, what's happening right now in the sky that I can see, I'm not sure if you guys can see it. It's nice to actually be able to see that right over there. What's happening out there right now is also exactly what's happening in heaven before the throne of God. Revelation 4 tells us that worship is happening constantly around God's throne. Revelation 4, 8 through 11 says, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The skies are proclaiming, God's glory. The living creatures and the elders in heaven right now are proclaiming God's glory. All of creation right now is proclaiming God's glory. And David, in this very psalm, wants to join in. He wants to proclaim God's glory. And he wrote this song, this psalm, to be sung by the choir of Israel. The Levites, not just away in a room somewhere, but in the gathered worship of God's people. It's meant to be proclaimed. Do you see God's glory when you look at creation? Does it make you want to sing out and worship? That's what it was designed to do. Verses 3 to 4 make it clear that this testimony of God's glory by the heavens, even though it's done without words, we don't hear them speaking, yet it can be understood by everyone everywhere. In fact, it's because the heavens make this proclamation without words that they can be understood by everyone everywhere everywhere, that the confusion of languages that happened at the Tower of Babel has absolutely no impact on the ability of the heavens to bear witness to God's glory. They don't use words, speech, or voice. And yet, there's nowhere that their message isn't heard. But at the same time, because these proclamations don't happen with words, Because they're silent, it can be easy for those who aren't paying attention to miss them. Have you ever noticed how oblivious people can be to what's going on right around them? I remember riding the subway in New York City in my younger years, and it always amazed me, the focus, the attention of those people on that subway to what they were thinking about and not at all to what was happening around them. You could have a man playing a saxophone, walking through the subway aisle. Or you could have an altercation between a number of loud people shouting. It didn't matter. Hardly anyone looked up from their phones or their newspapers to see what was going on around them. Have you ever been like that? Just oblivious to what was going on around you? It can be dangerous to be so focused on what you are paying attention to because you may miss what God is trying to say to you, to the glory being called out throughout our creation. At the end of verse 4, David leaves this discussion of the heavens more broadly and focuses in on one part of the heavens that declare God's glory namely the sun verses 4 to 6 speak more particularly about the way in which the sun itself is a picture of God and is a proclamation about God's nature his character and his glory these verses include two descriptions and depictions of the sun that act as pictures of God's glory The first depiction is of the son as a bridegroom, and the second is of the son as a strong man. In this first picture that we see in uh, verses 4 and 5, David uses a common biblical picture of the heavens as a tent or a canopy. That God stretched out the heavens as a canopy. And in this, can- in this canopy, God has established a path for the sun to go on the inside as if it's going across the roof of this tent as it crosses the sky. And David says that the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. This chamber could refer to two different things. It either refers to the home where the bridegroom lives as he comes out from his home to meet his bride for the marriage ceremony, or it could possibly refer to the covered pavilion under which Jewish weddings were performed. I'm not sure if you've ever seen a Jewish wedding, but it'll usually have this sort of covered little pavilion maybe with some gauzy fabric over it and the the bride and the groom and the rabbi stand underneath it to perform the wedding. Now, whether it's the bridegroom coming from his home to meet the bride, coming out from his chamber in that way, or whether it's coming out from this chamber where he just got married and coming out from there with his bride... You don't really have to imagine very much what this picture paints. You probably don't need to ask Jaron to tell you uh, what a bridegroom would feel like in this situation. You may have seen it in the way that Shane, when he got married, was uh, trying to get a head start on that little phrase toward the end of the wedding ceremony. Do you remember? You may now kiss your bride. He tried to to anticipate Samuel. As this bridegroom is coming out from his home to meet his bride, to be married, or as he's coming out from the wedding ceremony with his bride to begin the marriage celebration, the marriage feast that would have happened afterward, any married man in this room could tell you that such a man comes out with joy. He is beaming. He is excited. He is eager. In either case, he is attended. He doesn't come out alone. He's attended by family and by friends, and it is a moment of public notice. This is something important, And I want to do it in public. I want everybody to know about it. It is a community event. And in the same way, as the sun comes out from below the horizon and begins its transit across the sky, it is doing what it was made for. It is fulfilling its purpose. And it is beaming. It is bearing witness to God's glory to his power, to his life-giving nature, to his faithfulness and constancy. This proclamation is intended for the whole community, for the entire population of mankind. Verse 6 is very clear. The sun moves from one end of the sky to the other, and there is nothing that escapes its influence and its impact. The second picture, this illustration of the sun, is that of a strong man. This is probably not a weightlifter or a marathon runner. In the Old Testament, David had mighty men. And this is a picture of a warrior. Verse 6 describes this warrior, the sun, marching out along his course, undeterred by any obstacle or distraction that might get in his way. And as a mighty man, he is eager, even joyful, to charge ahead on the path set before him. When verse 6 says that there is nothing hidden from its heat, the analogy probably has a double meaning drawing on both illustrations. On the one hand, the sun's heat has a positive impact on the world. It produces warmth, And life, and is a blessing to mankind. But on the other hand, the sun's heat and its constant presence and proclamation to mankind from the heavens also means that its heat has the potential to burn and to act as a mighty man, much like David's mighty men, along the path of God's watchful care over the world and even of his judgment. In this respect, the proclamation of God's glory that's made by the sun is only ignored at the peril of those who are oblivious to it. So David wants to paint in these first six verses the way in which God's glory is encountered in the sky, in creation. But as he moves on to verses 7 to 11, the second section, he wants to shift his emphasis from creation To God's Word. David's second point in this psalm is that Scripture, God's Word to mankind, also similarly reflects God's glory, His character, and His nature. Or to put it simply, Scripture also declares the glory of God. David spends verses 7 through 11 speaking eloquently about the goodness of God's Word. He uses a grammatical formula to craft six parallel claims about God's word. Listen to the parallel structure. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Much like the psalmist in Psalm 119, David uses a number of different terms, but he does so in order to emphasize that he's talking about all of God's word, all of scripture. These terms are synonyms, And they emphasize different aspects of God's word. But they also overlap one another. The law of the Lord. The Torah of God. Doesn't just refer to the laws that we find in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used to refer to the first five books of the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used to refer to the entire Old Testament. Similarly. The entire Old Testament is a testimony to the Lord. It is a witness to who he is and to how he has interacted with mankind. And so understood together, these six terms all proclaim that God's word is perfect. All of it is right. All of it is able to make wise the simple. And all of it endures forever An interesting contrast between verses 1 to 6 and verses 7 to 11 is the use of God's name. The first section about creation only refers to the more general term, God, while verses 7 through 11 repeat six times this name of God, the Lord, the personal name of God, revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, the name by which he wanted to be known by his people. And so scripture, God's word, in this second section, is more clear in its description of God's glory than creation in the first section of this psalm. Creation speaks of God's glory, but scripture speaks of God's glory In greater detail and depth, it speaks of God's greatness, His power, His order, His faithfulness, His constancy, His life giving nature with more detail than we see in the heavens, with greater revelation of Himself and His righteousness and His will and His commands. And so, this second section of the Psalm portrays a closer knowledge of the Lord and a clearer proclamation of His glory. And these truths in verses 7 through 11 can generally be broken down into two categories. We see descriptions of what God's word is, and we see descriptions of what God's word does. What God's word is and what it does. As to what the word of God is, we read that God's word is perfect, blameless, sure, right, clean, true, enduring forever, and altogether righteous. It's my hope as we consider these attributes that you hear echoes of the congregational reading that we read this morning. In that reading, we've already proclaimed that scripture is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction that it is true without any mixture of error, and that it is the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. We've also affirmed in this reading that scripture has God for its author, and this is why just as creation reflects its maker, So also, scripture reflects its author, who is perfect, blameless, sure, right, clean, true, enduring forever, and altogether righteous. This is what scripture is because this is what God is. God's word isn't just excellent. It points us to the God who is perfectly excellent. That's what these verses say about what scripture is. But these verses also tell us us about what scripture does. Its impact on those who come to it and who rely on it. So let's take a moment to consider what these verses say about the impact of scripture on those who entrust themselves to it. Verse 7 tells us that God's word revives the soul. We tend to think of the word revives as a description of refreshment and it is... But this English word and the Hebrew word that it translates speak about much more than just refreshment. To revive someone is to bring them back from death to life. And this is the connotation of this word here as well. Scripture has the power to cause new life to spring up In people, it has the power of God inside of it by the Holy Spirit to bring to life from death. Scripture is very clear that every human being is dead in sin, apart from the power of God to bring new life. And so, all who feel crushed by sin, who feel empty, or who feel unable to stand in their own power are encouraged to come to God's word which will revive your soul verse 7 also tells us that God's word makes wise the simple and that's good news because I am simple God's message is a simple message for simple people but it is able to make us wise Not wise in the ways of the world, but wise in the ways of God. This message is for anyone, regardless of education or intelligence. And for that reason, many smart or academic people can actually easily miss it. And many who are arrogant would prefer not to place themselves under it in its simplicity. Instead, those who humbly recognize that they are simple can find in it the wisdom they need. Verse 8 tells us that God's word rejoices the heart and enlightens the eyes. Now this picture of enlightening the eyes probably has less to do with a kind of mental illumination or enlightenment than it does with this idea of refreshment and revival that we've already discussed. We see this same phrase used in 1 Samuel 14 by Jonathan, the son of Saul. When all the soldiers of Saul are weary and tired because they've been fighting all day and Saul laid an oath on them not to eat any food until nighttime, Jonathan, unaware of the oath, eats a bit of honey. And he says that when he tasted the honey, his eyes were brightened. He was refreshed. He was revived. He was given strength. The honey gave him energy. And in the same way, God's word can find us when we are tired and weary and can be a source of refreshment and new strength for us. And this verse also tells us that God's word can rejoice our hearts. So let me ask us, When you are weary and tired, do you recognize that scripture is the place of God's refreshment for you? That scripture can bring you joy beyond what you can revive on your own? Or do you act sometimes or think that reading scripture feels like a further burden or an extra weariness? If that's how you feel about Scripture, I just want to let you know you are not seeing Scripture as it was designed to be seen. And we all can pray to the Lord that he would refresh us with his word. Verse 10 continues this picture of the sweetness of honey. It says that Scripture is sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. It also says that you ought to desire it more than gold, even much fine gold. There are a lot of people who desire gold, who see money as the thing that will fulfill their craving or give them joy or strength in their toil and weariness. This song was written by David, a man who had a good amount of gold. And probably a lot of good food as well. And yet he knows even better than I do that those things are not what will bring satisfaction. He knows if I want to be satisfied, I must go to God. There's one final note worth mentioning at the end of this second section. David tells us two things that God's word can do for us. Verse 11 says that God's word can give us a great reward and it can also warn us, that it warns us when we're about to make a mistake. In the same way that the sun can offer a positive blessing of life and warmth and that the sun also offers a warning of the heat of God's judgment, so in the same way God's word offers the promise of great reward and also great warning. So let's all take David's encouragement and warning to heart that we should flee to scripture when we are tired to receive his blessing and that to neglect that scripture and the warning in it is to put ourselves in a place of danger. In this final section in verses 12 through 14, David brings a description of his response to encountering God's glory in the heavens and encountering God's glory in God's word. In light of that encounter, David clarifies that his response is to consider the righteousness, the faithfulness of God, and the warning that he would rightly take to himself. So he responds to that warning and to God's righteousness by a recognition of his own sinfulness. Verse 12 asks the question, who can discern his own errors? He sees God's righteousness, and he takes seriously this warning against his own sinfulness. And David understands the truth that we also see in Jeremiah 17, verses 9 to 10. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? David knows that truth. And he asks, who can discern his errors? And so he finishes this psalm with three prayers. In verse 12, David prays, Lord, declare me innocent from hidden faults. He knows my heart is deceitful. He knows of his own inadequacy. He is aware that he doesn't know his heart perfectly, but he's also aware that the Lord does. He asks the Lord to declare him innocent. But David also, in verse 13, makes a second request of the Lord. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are intentional sins. Sins that you do knowing that they are sins. There's an arrogance and a presumption and a pride to doing what you know is wrong. And David knows that he needs the Lord to keep him back from presumptuous sins so that they will not have dominion over him. Sin can have dominion over you. Romans 6 says, Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Brothers and sisters, do not offer yourselves to sin And to lawlessness. It will have dominion over you. But present yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. To be declared innocent of hidden faults, to be freed from the power of sin in his life. In response to his encounter with the glory of God, he wants to join the great chorus of those declaring God's praise. The heavens and the heavenly hosts, the living creatures and the elders and all creation. He wants to join them in a declaration of praise and glory to God. In his final prayer in verse 14, he asks God that his words, even his meditations, his thoughts, would be acceptable in God's sight. In the light of the glory of God found in creation and in his word and in the world, God desires us to recognize his righteousness and our need of his righteousness. But there is a truth that is in this psalm beyond David's understanding. David saw the way in which God's glory is seen in the sun, like a joyous bridegroom, shining its radiant beaming greatness out to the whole world. And David saw the way in which God's glory is found in God's word, which is able to bring us back from death to life. But these metaphors point beyond just the sun and scripture. The New Testament makes clear in Hebrews 1, 3, that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of God's nature. And John 1 tells us that the word of God was with God in the beginning. That the word itself was God. And that in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Psalm 19 extols the glory of God but that glory is most perfectly found in the true Son, in the true Word of God, Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the beaming one. He is the bridegroom. He is the Word. He is the one who offers us great blessing in himself, but who also warns us of the peril of neglecting that message. And so as we consider this psalm, I encourage each one of us to pay attention. It would be so easy to look at creation and miss God's glory. To miss its message of blessing and of warning. Every day, all around us, we are encountering God's glory. Don't be oblivious to it. Take a look. Stop. Pay attention. Don't be like those people in Romans 1. Who, though they had seen God's divine power and nature, nevertheless neglected to respond to it by honoring Him. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and God gave them up to their desires, to their sin. David calls us instead to honor God by recognizing His glory and His righteousness, especially in Jesus Christ, and our need to be declared righteous from our sin let us not lose the wonder of the glory of God seen in creation and seen in his word but let us strive to become a part of that great choir in heaven and on earth and everywhere that will sing the praise of the great choir master forever let's pray Lord, thank you. Thank you for shining the light of your truth to us all day, every day. Thank you for giving us these pictures of your great glory. Thank you for teaching us about your nature, your power, your goodness and character. And thank you that in Christ we see the fullness of your nature the fullness of your character, and the fullness of your glory. Lord, stop our minds, cause us to pay attention to this message, and to sing out your worship, your glory, and your praise with David, with the heavenly host, and with all creation, as you deserve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.